So we are in Psalm 130, if you want to turn there. If you were to Google ways to get rid of guilt, uh, you'd find a lot of articles. A lot. I did this. Hundreds, thousands of articles with advice on how to get rid of guilt. Uh, You will find some research on how our brains work and what guilt does chemically. Apparently, it's not too dissimilar from what pride does to our brains. You will find references to lots of books on how to deal with guilt. You'll find lots of advice. For example, you might find that while guilt has some benefits, overall it's, it's a bad thing. You might read that we shouldn't think of ourselves as bad people, but just as those who make mistakes and do bad things from time to time. Guilt is not about actions, or guilt is about actions, not identity, you will read. You'll find a lot of talk about self-compassion and self-forgiveness. And there's some helpful observations in all of this. There's a lot out there. This is a massive topic that our world is very interested in. And God's common grace means that we can find true and good things all over God's world, not only from Christian sources. But what you won't find among the thousands plus of search results that come up when you search for ways to get rid of guilt is Psalm 130. Now, I didn't go through thousands and thousands and thousands to, but near the top, you're not going to find Psalm 130. Perhaps if God was CEO of Google and controlled its algorithms, it would appear a little bit more near the top. But but it's not only our current world that is interested in the topic of guilt, that observes the presence of guilt and is looking for answers. God's Word does as well, and has for thousands of years. If you turn to the very beginning of our Bibles, of course, the first, very first story in the Bible has to do with guilt. And Psalm 130 brings us right to the heart of the matter and right to, it's a short, concise, focused, to-the-point look at God's purpose for guilt and God's answer to guilt. Jumps right into it. And as we go through this, you you may recall that we sing a couple songs here pretty regularly um, that are taken right from this psalm. And we're going to sing those right after the message today to further help us work through and process and celebrate the truths in this wonderful psalm. Okay, so let's start with the first couple verses of this psalm, which is a song or a prayer for, for all of us that God has given us to help us understand him and our relationship to him. So it says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Let me read it one more time. O Lord, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, the depths that the writer, the psalmist here is feeling are depths over sorrow, remorse, misery, guilt over sin. This is a cry specifically for mercy, not just for help or rescue. He isn't pleading for help from dangers and problems outside of himself, enemies, as we find in other psalms. 
situations, just the, the world around him. He is specifically pleading for help, for dangers, for, for what he finds within himself, a capability to sin that he finds within himself. Uh, this is further confirmed as you go through this psalm, and it talks about God marking iniquities, uh, there's being forgiveness with God, God uh, redeeming from iniquity. So that's the topic of this psalm is specifically this. This is someone overwhelmed with awareness of their sin against God, burdened under the weight of guilt and failure. This is like Paul in, in Romans 7. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is like David in Psalm 51. After being found out for his sin of adultery and then murder, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or this is like Isaiah. When at, in Isaiah 6, when he's given a vision of the Lord on his throne, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So before we consider what the psalmist does in response to this guilt, we should just sit in this feeling, or at least try to understand what he's feeling and how we have felt at times. Have you ever been in the depths of despair over your sin? Have you ever been so aware of both the presence of your sin and the gravity of your sin before God that it washed over you, that it weighed you down, it's all you could think about, even your physical body is weighed down by it, it just overwhelms and controls your whole existence. Out of the depths I cry to you, perhaps with how you have treated someone, someone close to you, someone in your own family, perhaps engaging in lusts or giving in to anger, Perhaps you've sought revenge against those who hurt or offended you. Perhaps you've ignored your conscience time and again so that you've drowned out God's convicting spirit. Perhaps you've lied. Perhaps you've built your life off of lies and deception and half-truths. Perhaps you've coveted what others have and stopped believing that God is good towards you. You know inwardly we know inwardly that we've done more than make some mistakes, that we can just do better next time and it will be all right. Part of the depths of despair and woe that we feel is that we know that we aren't sufficient to handle and deal with our guilt on our own, that we are surprised again and again by what comes up from inside of us, and we hate it. Like Paul in Romans 7. I hate it. I feel confident assuming that most, if not all of you, know what I'm talking about. And even if this was a room full of people who had no, made no claim to God, had no belief in God, I would still feel pretty confident in saying, I think you know what I'm talking about. This is a human reality. 
that we find within ourselves great capacity for evil. And notice that this psalm assumes that this will be the case. And God, in giving us this psalm, assumes that God knows. God knows that we will find ourselves at times feeling like this, and he's given us this psalm. He's not surprised. But more than that, this psalm assumes that such feelings and thoughts, such awareness of sin and guilt, have a place. That they have a place, that they have a purpose. The answer that this psalm will give to such feelings of despair, which is, as we'll see, crying out to God for mercy, assumes that there's some legitimacy to feeling like this. Why plead to God for mercy if there's not some truth to feeling burdened by sin? The psalm doesn't say, well, let's figure out why you're feeling like this. I think you're being too hard on yourself. You don't really understand yourself. Things aren't as bad as you make them out to be. Maybe you were raised in a home with unrealistic expectations. Maybe it's the expectations of the church you're a part of. Maybe you're putting expectations on yourself and feeling guilt for them. Now, those things might be true, and they often are, and they might need to be addressed. Not all guilt we feel is legitimate. Parents, and churches, and authority figures, even we ourselves can put expectations on ourselves that are not biblical or right, and we feel guilt. However, even if we understood ourselves with 100% clarity, and even if we understood what was good, right, and true with 100% clarity, we would still find ourselves in this spot with this psalmist, probably more so than we actually do. Our sin runs much deeper and is much more evil and heinous than we realize. This is one of the things that you quickly come across wherever you turn in your Bibles. Like, sin is pretty bad. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's active rebellion against our Creator God. And for that reason, certainly none of us want to be in this spot for very long. Nor does God desire that for us. So, what do we do? What does the psalmist do about this? If there is some truth and legitimacy to feeling like this at times, but this isn't what God wants for us all the time, what do we do? Well, the psalmist cries out to God for mercy. I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So here's the big idea. The, pro the answer that God gives to the problem of guilt is to cry out to the very one we have ultimately sinned against because he is merciful. Because he is merciful. The sin is real, if it's truly sin. The guilt is real, if it's truly sin. The depths of despair, there's some legitimacy to them. It does no good to just deny that. But just as real is the mercy that covers our sin and guilt, and makes us white as snow, and brings us up from the depths of despair into the unending peace and joy and hope and comfort of his love and favor. 
And so right after the psalmist cries out to God for mercy, he, he quickly reminds himself of God's mercy. He, he, his hope here is not just wishful thinking. This is who God has proclaimed to be. So we see this in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But, I've said this before, there are some big buts in Scripture. I expected a little more of a laugh than that. <laughs> but, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, the acceptance of our sin and guilt as real and as real serious before God is right, but incomplete. Yes, we need to see our sins rightly as God sees them. If God marked iniquities, if he gave us what our sins deserve, as Psalms 103 says, we could not stand. Verse 3 there is a rhetorical question. Who could stand? No one. This isn't saying that, well, there's some people that could stand. There's some people that could point to their own self and ignore God's forgiveness. No, no one could stand. All need forgiveness. But there is a greater truth that God proclaims about himself and he invites us to cling to, that he is merciful to sinners, that the judge is also our savior, that the very one that we've sinned against and who will justly judge all sin is the one with whom there is forgiveness. But with you there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness and cleansing for sins that overwhelm us, that cause us to feel the depths of despair and woe and guilt. No depth is too deep for his willing forgiveness. Uh, Romans Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You have this idea, if you can kind of picture it, of like sin, like trying to get ahead of grace, but grace is all ahead of it. That's not maybe the most theological way to put it, but the image is kind of there. For those aware of their sin, there is forgiveness in God. And so understand this. God's purpose is, in allowing, ordaining us to feel like this, like David and Paul and Isaiah and, the, and this psalm, in allowing us to feel the depths of the gravity and sorrow over our sin, is not to leave us there. God's purpose is not to leave us in that place, but to bring us to light and life and freedom and comfort and joy and worship in his love and mercy is to lead us to a new identity, a new worth, a new hope in him. And it is a secure and lasting identity because it's based on what he declares about us once and for all, not about what we declare or think about ourselves. It's secure and lasting because it's based off what God has done in Jesus in real time and space as a very real event. God's declaration about us when he forgives us in Jesus isn't about just how he feels at a certain point in time. It's based on what he's done. And as God forgives us in Christ, 
he remains just and righteous. He, he isn't just shrugging his shoulders and saying, well, you did your best. Everyone does it. You're better than most. No, he accomplishes a just forgiveness by putting himself in our place and experiencing not only our death, but also the judgment and weight of our sin. And this gets to the heart of why all other ways of dealing with guilt fall short. Because every other way of dealing with guilt requires you to be the judge and jury and redeemer and savior. It is up to you and your ability to convince your mind and your heart and your conscience that you are worth forgiving, that you can do better next time, that you're not a bad person, but you make some mistakes. All authority and all responsibility is on you, and you must believe yourself and to continue to believe yourself. And there is a sense in which this is incredibly freeing, and you don't have to listen to or heed or submit to any other ideas, anything or anyone outside of yourself. You make the rules, you make the judgments. But it's also incredibly frightening. Because it's all up to you. And there's no objective way to truly know if your judgment is good or right. It's all up to you to free yourself and save yourself and then continue to assure yourself that you were right in doing so. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, which came out a few years ago, speaks to this. He says, the freedom of sovereign individualism, this, this idea that we belong only to ourselves and have, don't belong to God, comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. And the only assurance we can ever have that we are living morally must come from within ourselves. No one can absolve you or pardon you. In other words, while there is a kind of freedom in denying God as judge and denying him as redeemer and taking that role on ourselves, it is actually an incredible burden that we cannot bear. And I suspect that you likely don't need convincing of this. That you know that you are insufficient to deal with your sin and guilt on your own. That you know that attempting to be your own judge and jury, redeemer and savior, hasn't worked. We only believe ourselves so much. And so this psalm and the gospel it points to gives us a real hope. Yes, we will feel like this. We will come face to face with our sin. But there is a path forward and out of that. With you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. And God's forgiveness is not a begrudging forgiveness. It is not a cold, transactional forgiveness, just a point of doctrine to believe in. God loves to be merciful and forgiving. We are told that he is rich in mercy, overflowing in mercy. It's who he is. We're told that the Lord is near to all who call on him. 
He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. And there are many, many other wonderful promises of God's heart like this in Scripture. And they all have the purpose of drawing us. They are for the end that we might come to him and call out to him and find his forgiveness and find hope and comfort in him. God loves to extend mercy and forgiveness to all who would come to him. Now, we can't miss that last part of verse 4. That you may be feared. I'll read the whole verse. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. In other words, God's mercy and forgiveness has a greater purpose than just our forgiveness. God is after something beyond, more than, not less than, but more than just our being forgiven. God's forgiveness is meant to lead us to fear the Lord. Now, first of all, what a wonderful, wonderful contribution this is to our understanding of that phrase, the fear of the Lord. It is not only God's great majesty and power and justice and, and wrath that are meant to make us fear him. It is also his compassion and mercy and forgiveness. When we behold him in all of all that he is, but including his goodness and compassion and forgiveness, we ought to be awakened to our senses. We ought to be compelled to make much of him and to live for him rather than ourselves. And secondly, this rules out what has been called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that God's grace frees us to continue living in sin. Because God is so forgiving, it doesn't really matter whether we fight against sin or just continue to live in it and, and embrace it. Well, there are many reasons that this is wrong, but one is that God's forgiveness and grace is intended to make us fear him more, not less. Cheap grace never brings us to our knees. Cheap grace never causes us to cry out from the depths of despair for God's mercy. Cheap grace never leads us to worship. Because cheap grace is ultimately all about us, not God. True grace places God at the center, and it sees the purpose of even our forgiveness as ultimately about God and making us more about God in our love and trust and obedience. If our understanding of God's grace and forgiveness leads us not to fear him, but to dismiss him and make light of him and continue to dwell in sin, then at the very least we do not understand God's forgiveness. And it is right to question whether we have truly received his forgiveness, because its purpose is to make us rightly fear him. In the back of my Bible, some of you know I have various pages of lists of quotes. I have a list of quotes on preaching, and one of them is by the, the hymn writer John Newton, hymn writer and preacher. He wrote, uh, wrote Amazing Grace. And it gets to the, 
It speaks to this matter. It gets to the very heart of God's purpose for and cure for for guilt. Uh, he says, my grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. My grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. The hard heart is one that sees no need for God's mercy. The hard heart is one that trusts in itself, trusts in oneself, perhaps even through things like religious observance and adherence, doing good things, trust in the fact that, well, at least I'm not like those other people. Such hard hearts may be in church every Sunday, but their heart is hard and they are shut off to seeing any need for God's mercy, any need for God's pity on them. A hard heart may openly deny or hate God as well. There are many ways to have a hard heart. But if such hearts are not softened or not broken, not led to cry out for mercy, not ever finding themselves in this spot, they cannot be saved. Because God saves through forgiveness. But hearts once broken and softened need to be comforted, need to be healed, need to be assured by the mercy of God. And so uh, as we pastor and shepherd, as, as you disciple one another and care for one another, this is something to keep in mind. We need a wisdom to discern whether we are dealing with a hard heart that needs broken or a broken heart that needs healed and comforted. You deal differently depending on the case. God deals differently with us depending on the condition of our heart. So having then cried out to God for mercy and cast ourselves on the truth, there's forgiveness with him. What do we see the psalmist do next? Final verses. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, what is the psalmist waiting for here? Well, in the Old Testament, in which we find this psalm before Christ and the gospel was fully revealed, there was still the testimony that God would forgive sins, that God was a forgiving God. That was made abundantly clear, including here. And you had this sacrificial system in the temple with the priests that affirmed God's forgiveness and gave a temporary basis for it. Animals were were to be sacrificed for people's sins. And so perhaps what the psalmist is waiting for is for a regular sacrifice to occur and the proclamation that God had indeed forgiven his sins. Perhaps. What does this mean for us? Well, all of these sacrifices are forward-pointing to the death of Christ as the greatest sacrifice. And this is explained to us well from in Hebrews 10. Read a few verses. For since the law, uh, and here the law is referring not just to commands, but also to the sacrificial system that was set, God had set up in conjunction with it. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood and bull and go- bulls and goats to take away sins. Jumping forward to, to verse 12. But when Christ, another big but, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we, living when we do post-Christ, don't merely have the promise that God is going to redeem Israel. We have the assurance that it is done in Jesus. We don't have to wait for the bull to be sacrificed. We don't have to wait for the word of forgiveness to be made. We can stand with confidence in Jesus' cry that it is finished. God's work of redemption is accomplished, done. Wherever you are at today, if you are in the depths of sorrow over your sin, if you've tried attempting to deal with sin and guilt on your own and found it to be lacking, if you've lost hope, put your hope in His Word, His promises. Put your hope in the cross. And don't let your guilt or despair or self-pity keep you from coming. Don't wallow in shame as an attempt to punish yourself and justify yourself, telling yourself you don't deserve grace. Well, of course you don't, but it's given freely and joyfully. Did you know that God is more glorified by you casting yourself on His grace and taking your sin and guilt on the cross than by you attempting to deal with it yourself. And you are more helped. And just as with verse 4 there, that you may be feared. The, the wonder and greatness of God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus dying for us is meant to lead us to fear God even more. The greatest motivator is not guilt, but love. And Christ's love, as we are told, compels us or controls us. God would have us be compelled by his love. As we cry out to him from the depths of despair and find him to be sufficient and good. Christ's love on the cross draws us out of our misery, our hopelessness, And it heals and comforts us. And then it changes and motivates us. It causes us to fear him and to love and trust and worship and obey him. Through the gospel, God is creating a people who rightly fear him. And I've used this image before. It's from a guy named Michael Reeves. But to fear him in a way that falls forward to him, not that recoils and pulls away from him. That's the kind of fear that God is after. That's the right kind of fear. A fear that attracts and draws us to him. Let's pray. 